Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Empire Ears in collaboration with Grammy-winning producers, engineers, and their family of touring musicians. Empire Ears has developed a line of in-ear monitors that deliver what you need for every mix. When it comes to unrivaled stage clarity or needing a flat and honest reference for your latest studio mix, Empire Ears has got you covered no matter where you find yourself. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Hello, everyone. If you're a member of the metal community or know anything about it, you know that the Grammys have not always been kind to us, though in recent years, they've made a big effort to move towards having actual metal bands who are not just legacy acts, but current bands that are doing great new music. Uh, They made a big effort to recognize those bands, nominate those bands, have those bands win, which is really, really important because for the longest time we were getting like hard rock and non-metal bands or classic rock bands in the metal category. And frankly, it wasn't cool. It was not giving credit to the bands that were pushing these genres forward. So now that they have made this effort, I want to support that effort um, because... Anything that helps make our genre relevant is good by me, and especially stuff like the Grammys or anything coming from the wider music industry or the wider world in general that legitimizes our genre. That's great to me. So I'm doing a series of podcast episodes where I'm going to be talking to the nominees for the 2019 Best Metal Performance Grammy. And first up is between The Buried and Me, uh, who are nominated for their most recent record, uh, Condemned to the Gallows, which was produced by their longtime collaborator, Jamie King, mixed by the incredible Jens Bogren. And today I've got... Jamie King on with Dan Briggs from the band. Uh, he's their longtime bassist. He also does some keyboards. Uh, and just a little background on these guys. Jamie King is a 22-year veteran of uh, production, and he owns and operates the basement recording out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he's worked with a ton of bands, uh, Motionless and White, Through the Eyes of the Dead, The Contortionist, and of course, this episode is going to specialize or focus on his work with the mighty between the buried and me. He's been working with them since the very beginning, and he's been on almost everything that they've done to some capacity, and they've gone to other people, and as you'll hear, they've come back to him 
over and over and over. And that's something that those of you who are trying to establish yourself in production are hopefully trying to trying to cultivate is some bands that just stick with you through their entire career so that you grow together. Um, now, Dan Briggs has been playing bass as well as doing backup vocals and keyboards for the band since around 2005. And he's been, he has several side projects that are great as well, but he comes from a legitimate schooled musical background and is just a powerhouse of a musician. Um, and if you want to check out some of his other projects, they're called Nova Collective, Orbs, and Triosscapes. But this guy is just a phenomenal musician, great bass player, and so I'm proud to welcome both Mr. Jamie King and Dan Briggs from Between the Barrett and Me to the URM podcast. Here goes. Mr. Dan Briggs, welcome to the URM podcast. Jamie King, welcome back to the URM podcast. I'm stoked to have you guys both here. Stoked to talk some shit. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so let's just get into it. You guys have known each other, what, like going on 15 years now? Yeah. Yeah, was it since 2000, 2004? Five, yeah. Yeah, yeah. one of the, uh, I was probably only down here for like a month. And then if you remember, we came to do an Alaska demo. Yep. At the old basement, and what, in like three or four months, three members of the band had changed. Me and Dusty and Blake had joined. Yep. And I think we just wanted wanted to record a demo of that song to be like, hey, the band is still uh, still a thing, and this is what we sound like. And that was, yeah, like 14 years ago. Did you move there to join the band? Like, are you saying that you're not from there? I was in school in Pennsylvania, um, and I grew up there, and... You know, I did I did three semesters in school, and then I left and uh, I moved down here when I was twenty. So, to join the band, yeah. Isn't it funny how, like, in most cases, that would be a bad idea? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess it worked out. It worked out this time, though. Yeah, I was in school studying music performance, and you know, thankfully, my parents were super supportive. My mom's a music teacher, and um, she knew that I had been listening to the band for a couple of years, and was really into them since their demo and, you know, the old band, Prayer for Cleansing. So uh, she was super psyched. It worked out. So, Jamie, when you hear that there's going to be this new bass dude named Dan coming in, were you like, fuck, I hope this guy is not a fuck up? Or were you like, <laughs> yes, this guy's going to be sick? <laughs> Where was your head at? I didn't give a shit. Actually, I didn't, I didn't even know. None of the above. I think they just showed up. I mean, because I had done, you know, I'd recorded BT Bam, you know, the, the first lineup or whatever with Jason King. And then they had gone through, like Dan mentioned, they had gone through a couple bass players since then. I know, what was it? Did we do a, they, they did a Counting Crows cover with the other guy? Oh, yeah. They did that with you, though, right? Yeah. So I, I recorded a Counting Crows cover uh, before Dan was in the band. It was with another guy uh, named Kevin, I believe. Aside from Tommy and Paul, there was kind of a revolving door of drummers and bass players and extra guitar players up until, you know, what is now the classic lineup of uh, Alaska. You know, Dan joined. So, But, yeah, Dan came in. He was obviously a, a master <laughs> at what he was doing. I, pretty much everything was pretty one take on that. Demo, even the record. Yeah, I remember being super, like, especially I think when we did the demo 
I just really wanted to like, because it was the first time I was like playing even for the guys isolated. And I just wanted to really nail it, nail that song. And of course, we weren't we weren't even to a click track at that point. So ouch. thankfully, Blake's pretty much a metronome. So thankfully, that made it, uh, you know, feel solid. Jamie, were you like thinking that you were going to get to work with someone that uh, you'd end up working with for like a decade and a half? Or were you like, ah, <laughs> oh, this is just going to be another one of the, another part of the revolving door. But the reason I'm asking, like, is because as a producer, there's been lots of times where, you know, I have a band I've worked with and they go through lineup changes and they'll be like, this new dude's sick. And uh, they'll come to record and the, <laughs> the new dude's not even close to as good as the last dude was. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes the new guy is unbelievable. I, I hate to admit this because I, I feel like a dick, but if I'm being honest, whenever I hear about a new, like new people coming in, unless I know who they are, I'm a little skeptical. Oh, yeah. But that's just because I'm a dick. You're not a dick. <laughs> oh, I am. Trust me. Large in part today, I mean, I'm, you know, I've always considered myself kind of that stepping stone producer guy. You know, at that time, I was still working in my parents' dirty basement. You know, it was just all budget gear. I, I mean, I want to say maybe it was, were we still tracking with ADATs at that point? Maybe not. I don't think so, no. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it was still quite project. You know, I didn't have, you know, absolute top gear and things like that. And uh, so, you know, you know, with BT Bam in general, I just thought, yeah, hey, I'm here to do these guys' demos. And, uh, you know, I was felt lucky I was getting to do an actual label released, you know, Alaska record, you know, the recording. I never thought, you know, in terms of, hey, we'll be still working together 20 years later. You know, you know, most bands, they, they record with me and, you know, work their way through the ranks and then end up recording with somebody real. And that's what I assume would happen with BT Bam. But those guys are uh, either retarded or uh, <laughs> or they're very uh, generous. But it's funny, though, that you, you're you very humble. You don't consider yourself somebody real, but you've made some very real records. <laughs> it's got lucky, man. All right. But, uh, I mean, we all get lucky. In, like, I think we're all lucky in who we've met. You know what I mean? Like, I'm lucky that the people I've met over, like, introduced me to certain people who then introduced me to other people and, you know, one thing led to another. But I mean, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's as far as luck goes. Yeah. Then again, also, so it's like you're lucky that you met the right people who were in the right band, who was at the right time in history that, did, you know, in the right genre, all that stuff, that stuff's all, you know, out of your control. But I mean, whether or not you do a good job on the record <laughs> is not out of your control. That's totally in your control. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think, you know, with the BT BAM camp, I think it's always been important. You know, I know to Paul and Tommy from the very beginning, you know, are just people who are cool and who have a good work ethic, common uh, interest and goals and things like that or whatever. And I think, I think that, you know, that's what those guys saw in me or whatever, that I was obviously a fan. I remember when I first recorded them back in 2000, you know, this height of, you know, rap rock and new metal and, uh, you know, and I was wondering, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I loved it because I grew up on progressive, you know, thrash metal and stuff like that. I loved what they were doing. And I was like, you know, why are you guys doing this? Like this, 
it's never going to do anything. I literally, I remember <laughs> asking, asking the guys that, you know, I was like, why, you know, why are you doing you know, some real metal right now? And, <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's just what we like, you know, I remember, you know, cause BT Bam, I had BT Bam when the studio, when they did the, the first record, which was a live recording, basically, you know, I had them, I asked them if they wanted to open for my band. They actually opened for my band in, in 2000, which is hilarious, you know, That's to think, awesome. you know, we were, you know, like kind of a new metal outfit or whatever back in the day. And, uh, uh, and they're like, man, this is like the uh, biggest crowd we've ever played in front of, you know, it, you know, played for and whatever. And, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's funny how things kind of, uh, come around, but, um, they, I think they knew I was a fan and, uh, you know, I think, you know, like I said, I think that worth ethics was, we did common things and we, we all have a kind of common, uh, terrible sarcastic sense of humor also, which makes it, uh, <laughs> makes it a lot of fun. We do. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of elements that go into it, um, you know, I, I think it's probably customary. I I mean, we know from some of the outside working experiences we've had with producers where when you show up, I mean, we worked with a guy who, you know, wanted us to actually chart out some of our compositions uh, to Paul and I. And he, he wanted time signatures. He wanted a rundown of the whole song. And we show up on the first day tracking drums. Chart out like Berkeley College of Music style chart. Jazz band chart. It was unreal. But like when we show up with Jamie, you know, and we're starting to do drums, it's somehow he, he already has a sense of the song. He already gets it. He knows magically. It seems like he already knows the layout and what's happening uh, without. I mean, I think Blake sends you the demos, but yeah, you, pro <laughs> you probably half listen to them while you're working on mixes and masters for other things. I think, like I said, we all grew up on kind of the same. I mean, everybody has different influences, obviously, in the band, including myself. But, you know, we just all grew up, you know, I grew up on Dream Theater and, you know, all these other bands and, and you know, a lot of the same stuff that, you know, the guys were listening to, I listened to. And so I think that we just instinctively have an idea of, and we've evolved together also, which is kind of interesting, I think. You know, yeah. we've evolved in similar directions, which is strange, you know. You know what I think is interesting now that you're saying that? It makes me think of my own background in, I guess, more complex music or or a varied musical background, which I think that I I know what you guys are saying because I think that there's not that many people who have this particular musical background, but I, I remember hearing BT Bam stuff in like 2004, 2005, six, whatever, back in those days and being like, being able to understand the influences and understand the direction, understand, like I got it and I was like, hmm, I bet that we listen to similar music or yeah. something like that. Cause I feel like I knew where their heads were at. And I, I liked that um, because it's a very unique musical background. You don't hear that uh, in too many bands. So I imagine, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that while there's probably a lot of producers who are technically good enough to work with you guys, you guys need someone who is not only technically good enough, but who conceptually gets what you guys are doing or else it could be a fucking disaster. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a band when we show up to the studio. I mean, the songs are 100% arranged and written. and you don't want to go in and have someone question why you, you know, you've dropped an eighth note on the last phrase, you know, each time or why you want to put bluegrass on a over a heavy section <laughs> or, you know, you know, like why, why you want to play the mandolin in this part. And you just kind of want it to be like, okay, awesome. Let's, let's try it. Let's do it. 
I know I get stoked on this. Like I said, I get stoked on the same stuff, you know, and they know, you know, I, I encourage probably some of their worst decisions, uh, <laughs> you know, making things more wild, you know, but uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, part of what BT Bam has always been. And Name me one that you think is more wild or a bad decision that isn't really a bad decision, but na- name me one just so for ins- for people who don't know the band or you, like, <laughs> for example. <laughs> I keep finding ways to inspire animals to on the record. <laughs> what? There's a shrieking cat on the new record that ended up pretty loud in Jens' yeah. mix. <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah, he, he loved it, obviously. You know? Like, that's kind of a joke, but yeah, that might have been Paul's idea. Whose idea was that? I don't know. Oh, so you, you guys sampled a cat? Every record almost has some sort of animal. Oh, yeah. Since Colors. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, some sort of there's a horse and there's like the one the the, the EP there's there's what uh, the pull the string pull turkey sound. Yep. On this this the C the C and say or whatever that thing is they got turkeys and sheep and. If you if you remember we added all that afterwards, you know we tried to do the the, the mix and you had to come save it. Yeah, your other producer wouldn't allow right. it. Right, so we came down here and added all that with you. <laughs> Can, like, you hear these animals, or is it stuff that, like, like little Easter eggs? Oh, yeah, it's in there. Yeah. Okay. And especially if especially if we told you the exact minute and time where it happens, you would hear it. Yeah. Are these, like, NSA secrets, or uh, is this something that listeners are allowed to know where they happen? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean— I just think it's amazing. I love animals. <laughs> <laughs> the cat is on the last song— on the record, I can't think of, if you if you if you like literally want like an actual example. Like, I'm trying to think. <laughs> so the last song on the most recent record? Yeah, the, uh, the grid. Okay. I don't know the the time of it. I think there's this guitar thing that Paul does. It sounds like a dive bomb or a cat or a screech or something like that. It's, it's like a wow, and it's like kind of sounds like like a whammy, like a whammy pedal or something. <laughs> but it's it's a cat, yeah. Oh man, it's amazing. Sounds to me like you guys do what you want, but are there ever musical directions where you're specifically like, eh, we don't want to do that? Like, are there any areas that you purposefully avoid? Hip hop. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, we've had such a long career, both of us, thankfully, and together that we've been able to um, to grow and mature in a way together. So I feel like like in the band, we've we've matured as composers and arrangers and uh and jamie gets better with every record that he does and a couple years go by and we get back together and we do our thing um i think we just we have a there's a silly side to our band which not a lot of people might not know if they don't know us and and not know jamie personally and when we get together we're we're generally pretty silly and we spend the first like week and a half just knocking out the rhythm stuff we get it done that's usually not that much fun. But when you say rhythm stuff, you mean drums, bass, rhythm, guitar? Drums, bass, rhythm, guitars, like anything that's not a lead or, you know, a fun layer, anything too crazy. Um, you know, we we knock that out and then we just spend the rest of the time kind of just having fun in the studio, you know? Yeah. Week and a half? That's actually really fast. Do you mind if we talk about that a little bit? Because yeah. I'm actually kind of blown away by that speed because... I don't know. I've worked with some really good bands and, you know, like I'm used to a week or a week and a half on drums and then like another week or a week and a half on rhythm guitars. And then 
<laughs> four hours on base. No, I'm just kidding. Like, uh, we would lose our fucking mind if we did that. Could you imagine Blake for a week and a half? Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> at the Fiddlatorium. You know, Blake always blocks out more time than he really needs to do the drums, and he ends up doing them in like two days or something. I mean, he- oh, he's one of those guys. He gets it going, and then before you know it, it's done. What we've done since Colors, and it works so well, is instead of having a marathon guitar day, followed by a marathon bass day, like, we don't really like that. We we go one song at a time, and we do the rhythm uh-huh, guitars okay. for both sides, and then I come in, and I do the bass. So really, you're only prepping, you know, two, three songs at most for a day, and the other guy's can freshen up on the next song while I'm tracking bass. You know, a couple hours go by, then we switch off, and then I'm working on the next song while they're tracking. So we pretty much come in and just just slam it once we get the tones. That You know, that's a really efficient way of doing things and a really smart way of doing things. I've made records a few times like that. I've always loved that. And also, not only is it efficient, and keeps people inspired, but it's also like insurance against injuries, for instance, like that can really hold oh, yeah. a record up. Like one of the things that I started doing towards the later part of my production career was recording vocals from the beginning. Oh. Uh, from, well, not from the very beginning, but from the earliest point possible yeah. where you could get. And because, uh, you know, like on metal records, typically vocals are kind of an afterthought. Uh, like they'll be done in the last three days and the vocalist will have to cram stuff. And that always weirded me out because, you know, arguably vocals are the most important thing on most records. And they're kind of, like I said, like an afterthought. And what's interesting to me is that I I know that in some genres, at least vocals are not taken that seriously. But dude, even any of the bands that have gotten really, really big took their vocals seriously. Even Lamb of God that's like all screaming pretty much or was all screaming for the first 20 years, those vocals are meticulously produced. So I always thought that it makes more sense to give everybody, especially the vocalists, a lot more time uh, so that you can get them at top inspiration, top restedness, top focus, like top arm strength, like top everything. Yeah. And just uh, give them a break. Don't wear them out. The metal drums also, I mean, you know, it's a lot of extreme stuff, you know, it can uh, can really tire people out, you know, uh, you know, with the blast beats and things of that nature or whatever. So, but yeah, doing it in, in, in sections and breaking things up and splitting up days and stuff, you know, it keeps you from getting burnt out and, you know, keeps, like, like you mentioned, inspired and uh, fresh and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it just, de- it definitely makes sense, you know, and you know, not a lot of, you know, a lot of the smaller bands I work with, you know, the people have to work and go to school and things of that nature or whatever. So it's not always, we don't always get to do that ideal thing. But uh, with the BT band, uh, they've always uh, been able to schedule, you know, uh, you know, more than enough time and uh, we can take it uh, and take it and do it in uh, comfortable chunks or whatever. And then, like I said, uh, we were talking about before, a lot of it has the, the speed in which they record has a lot to do with their their proper preparation in my mind, you know, it's like, uh, you know, not, you know, it's, it's ideal that 
they've written and recorded the whole record once before they come to the studio, you know, at least all the basics, you know. And uh, that way we can come in and there's no, hey, let me learn this riff or let me, you know, write this lyric or whatever. Yeah. It's like, let's just get the good tones and good takes or whatever so we can focus on that and makes it way quicker. And then we have plenty of time at the end to do the fun, the fun texturing stuff, you know. Yeah. Dan, you already said that you guys are pretty prepared. I imagine I would kind of expect nothing less out of you guys. I think that there's no room for fucking around in this genre anyways. But like, as far as prepping for the studio goes, can you walk us through what that means for you guys as a band or individual players? Right, totally. So with the last couple releases, with Automata and Coma Ecliptic, we um, we had, generally when we have a really good and productive writing session... We rap about a month before we have to actually go into the studio, and we've had that with both those records. And that month is so nice because for me, as a as bassist, I usually don't come to my bass parts and really solidify them until that month because I'm more in composer-arranger mode before that, so I'm at rehearsal or at my desk with guitar, with keyboard, um, while we're doing the writing, and then um, I kind of add my bass in after Blake has solidified his drums because there used to be a lot of uh, occurrences on, like, maybe Colors, The Great Misdirect, where I would meticulously write a bass part based off, you know, our guitar profile or whatever, and then Blake will come in with his accents, and they're just the total opposite, which is awesome and leads to really cool rhythmic stuff, but instead of trying to fight those rhythms... I just would acquiesce and be like, okay, well, I'll rewrite my bass part. And so now I just I just kind of wait. Smart. Yeah, if there's ideas that I have, you know, I kind of illustrate it in um, the Reason file that I do. So we do all of our demoing and stuff in Reason. That's where I generate a lot of my keyboard sounds and just what I work in at home. And Tommy and Blake have it, so it's easy for us to just send those files back and forth to each other. They're not bigger usually than, like, you know— 400 megabytes or so. Um, and then uh, in that month, really, you know, Paul and I will write out our individual parts. Uh, it's just, it's like, that's the time to do it. You know, I'll go one song at a time, make sure I've got, you know, written in reason exactly what I want to do. And it sounds good. And then I go through and I notate it. I have it. And then I have that as a reference when we're here in the studio. If I am getting tripped up on something, I'll look and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that note. That's that's right. That's Hold on. A question about Guitar Pro or about notation. Um, so you you have an actual educated background in in music, and obviously you guys know how to play. So the so I'm actually curious about this. I never get to talk to people such as yourselves about this exact topic, but I thought for a long time that Guitar Pro and that sort of thing kind of had a bit of a detrimental effect on the playing side of bands not because I was trying to be like an old old school guy that was like in my day bands used to play in the same room and none of that it's more just that like they would write stuff and then not even check if it was playable on the <laughs> instrument like they wouldn't even check if it was possible to have like a good a good feel with it. And then they'd come to the studio and they'd have these parts that were just 
ludicrous. They just don't make any sense in the real world. I have experienced that. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> Yes. But Dan, with you guys, like, obviously, you know how to play your instrument. Obviously, you guys all know how to play your instruments. You were doing this before that technology came around. So um, you guys predate Guitar Pro as we know it now. So uh, you had to learn by playing. I know I know this um, just based on age So and when, and history. So that said, how do you guys incorporate uh, stuff like Guitar Pro or similar technologies in a way that doesn't fuck up your ability to play the parts right or with musical feel. Yeah, it's literally just for documentation, just so, because, you know, you, you write an hour-long record. We've got, like, ten of them now. I'm constantly writing. I was working on new music before I came here for a new band that I'm doing. I've got a lot of bands on the side. I just can't, I can't remember shit. So, literally, mm-hmm. I have, you know, I... Uh, I started making songbooks during Alaska, and um, now now a lot of bands make them, but I would make them back then just so I could remember the shit because it's too much. And if I have to go reference a song from that we didn't play on our last tour, I won't remember it. You know, that that's kind of been a fear of mine in because um, I've thought about teaching lessons now that— That's a legit fear. Now that Skype is a thing, and I don't want a kid to be like— oh, hey, like, I want to learn this riff or this section. And I'm like, well, hang on, let me learn it first because it's not in my brain. I'm constantly working on new music. Well, I mean, what if you haven't played it in 10 years, you know? Exactly. So, no, yeah, for us, it's literally just the documentation so we have it so we can play it. Like, the we, we do a lot of writing apart, but um, it generally happens in a program like Reason you know, you're either doing something that's MIDI based or you're, uh, you know, I'm recording, I'm, I'm playing guitar or something into it. And Paul, you know, will do some playing at home and send a guitar profile. And really, it's like if you want the other guys to learn the song or this, these parts that you've written, then you share a guitar profile so they can just physically see what the part is and, and learn it. So you guys do it the right way. I was going to say, if I remember correctly, I remember Dan coming in and reading stuff off staff paper that he had written in the early days Alaska that was pre-Guitar Pro maybe and you were doing that oh totally when we did that yeah. song Laser Speed um, which was just like a lounge jazz the, the, the way that um, uh, what Alaska ends I still do a lot of shorthand writing like if I'm learning a riff of Dusty's like on the spot I'm like okay just let me get these you know 16 notes let me let me jot down the rhythm real quick for me, you know, music notation has always just been, it, it's really, it's just a language. So as much as, you know, you, you could like type down a note in your phone or something, it's just like that. It's just jotting it down real quick so I have it. You know, it, it's sort of that thing. I want to clarify something uh, that you said earlier. So you were talking about how you guys did a song with a producer once and he wanted you to present him with the arrangement or whatnot. Yeah. Because it sounds to me like from what you're telling me is that you already have the arrangements written out for all the songs anyways. Pretty much, but this would be like... More parts. More parts, yeah. He wanted to see each bar. So if there's like a 32-bar break uh, where I'm not playing, where there's alternating time signatures, he it was literally he wanted to be able to say, okay, Blake, punch in at measure 52. Oh, oh, okay. So he wanted it as if he was grading you for an arrangement class or something. <laughs> exactly. Of course, Blake would be like, 
well, I don't know what measure 52 is. And then we'd have to be like, oh, it's it's the beginning of this part. You know, like we had to sit in the room with it. Yeah, to me, all that just, you know, there's a, you know, there's a level, you know, I think some people just want to be nerds about it and it just makes it difficult for no real reason, you know. You know, I think there's a lot of that has gone on in the uh, in the production realm for a long time for a lot of people. Like, hey, let's come in and figure out cl- all the click tracks to every single last thing. It's like, how about you play, and then we'll figure the click tracks out to what feels best. You know, I don't, I don't, you know. Yeah. The thing with the arrangements is that's it only works out. I guess Dan, the way you're describing, if every single person. In on the project right. is on the same page yeah, about exactly. that. Like if you get a jazz band yeah. going into the studio, then you know that's the language they speak. Or uh, an orchestral project, they get their scores. Like that's the that's how they communicate. But if right. you have a metal band where like three of the guys went to music school, or two of the guys, and they read arrangements just fine, but then two of the guys are like street musicians who are great, but like you know they don't speak in that language necessarily, which is most actually in heavier music, yeah. mm-hmm. which is perfectly fine. You know, like, we'll slow things down. Yeah, our band is kind of a mix because me and Blake and Paul can talk in terms of theory or written notation or whatever. Um, Dusty's come around to to understanding those topics a little bit, but but he is really just an ear guy, you know, and he's a phenomenal musician. And I wish I could get into his brain and hear how he understands our music because I'm so curious. And then, you know, Tommy's Tommy's kind of the same. He's he um, he's I, I think just from working with us over time, he's he's picked up more theoretical stuff. But he was just kind of like a pick it up and play it and do it guy. And and that's awesome. You know, but it's nice. Like like on this record, we had some horn players come in. And so, like, you know, because of my background or whatever, like, thankfully, like I could write up the charts for them to be able to play for like trombone and trumpet and be able to do it. And it's kind of a mix of those worlds. That's kind of how we operate. Jamie, question for you, because uh, you just talked about how some people way overthink this shit. I've experienced both. So like, I know exactly the situation that Dan's describing where this is like super effective way to go. But I've also been in situations where the bands put this kind of stuff ahead of the music itself yeah, and their ability to play it. <laughs> exactly. And they get way hung up on like having everything laid out properly yeah. instead of making the songs great. Uh, like, where do you draw the line? Like where, like, cause obviously uh, if you see BT Bam doing it, you probably don't think uh, these idiots, but like, um, where's the line for you? Uh, unfortunately there's no line, you know, as far as I'm concerned when there's uh you know, whoever's, you know, whoever's paying for the records, the boss. So, you know, I try to uh, make that person happy and, you know, you know. Well, fair, no, I know, but I'm just mean in, in the recesses of Jamie King's dark mind. <laughs> yeah, <know>? Exactly. <laughs> where's, where's the line? <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of times I, you know, I play mediator between the band members. And as you probably know, there's a lot of uh, psychology that goes into working with artists. And, you know, a lot of times you have, you know, with bands, you have multiple members and, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, one guy's thinking of things theoretically, other guy's thinking of things on how it feels. And then, you know, there's arguments and things like that. And I always try to find some kind of common ground and try to steer the band on what I think, you know, um, logically is the most important thing, you know, is, is you know, it's, you know, is how it feels, how it sounds, how the people are going to hear it and translate what you're doing and all that stuff. And, and a lot of times that doesn't involve, uh, you know, the technicality aspects at all, in my opinion. I try to think of, uh, 
you know, any any kind of uh, factual based information that I can share with them to to convince them that the way they're seeing things is either correct or not exactly correct or not or either best or not best, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but at, at the end of the day, like I said, I've, I'm, I'm cornered into, you know, having records uh, with, uh, you know, aspects that I don't agree with wholeheartedly oftentimes just because I just, I personally feel like, you know, it's important for the artist, you know, it's not my art. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of producers, they they get into the band's art too much or getting their way too much. You know, I understand a lot of times, you know, a label might be paying for the, the producer and stuff, but, you know, and it, sometimes that's the case with me, but I'm, I'm still almost always on the side of the artist. You know, I understand, you know, I got into this because, you know, I was in a band and I wanted things to sound a certain way. I wanted to do certain things. And, and you know, and the producers, no matter how much I paid them, you know, we, you know, we took a $90 an hour studio and they still wouldn't make my kick drum sound the way I wanted it to sound, even though they could, you know. <laughs> and it is, is infuriating. Well, yeah, that shit would make me irate. That's what made me start recording. I'm <laughs> Back not, in those days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's because, you know, when, you know, I was recording, you know, Soundgarden was the big band or whoever, you know, like alternative rock. And, you know, I still wanted my drums to sound like Pantera or Metallica or whatever. And they just would not do it. It's like, dude, that's, I don't care what's popular right now. This is what I want my drums to sound like. So, like, literally, that's what, you know, after recording at other studios throughout high school and right after high school, that's all. I was like, I guess I just got to do this for myself, you know, or for myself. You know, that's why I got into it because I wanted things to sound a certain way. And I knew how to make them sound that way to a degree. I had researched it. And uh, I was like, I guess I just have to f- try to scrape up money to buy the equipment to do it myself. And then, over time, I realized, oh, you know, other bands are wanting me to record them. And then, you know, that led me to, you know, Between the Bear and Me and these other bands. And a lot of, you know, because I was getting the sounds that the, the the underground bands wanted, you know. Even, you know, there were nice studios, way nicer, you know, real studios in the area. But the engineers or producers wouldn't give them the sounds they wanted. Either they didn't know how or they just wouldn't do it. And uh, so, you know, I still to this day, I carry that with me. You know, as I want to do with the client is what they're trying to uh, express artistically and uh, creatively. So I, I remember back in the late 90s and early 2000s, kind of like when I was getting the decision together to start my own studio, I remember that phenomenon specifically. And I feel like you can't run a studio like that anymore. Like, I feel like those days are over. Like, I remember going to places that were like $90 an hour and them not, doing what was right for us and it just like walking out with a ninety dollar an hour piece of shit. Oh, and yeah. um I spent thirteen and being grand. Like, what is yeah, like what what is going on here? Like I don't think you can get away with that anymore, which I think is really, really great. But on the topic of you offering to people what they actually wanted, regardless of whether or not you had some Neve console or something like that. I think that that's the most important thing. And so question is for you, Dan, you guys, you know, could have gone to just about any producer you want based on the size of the band. Like you did not have to stay with Jamie. And I know, you. I mean, obviously like bigger bands can go wherever they want, but you have, you guys have stayed working together this whole time, which says a lot. And I feel like we've covered a lot of why you guys stuck with Jamie. But if you had to say something to producers who are coming up, like the students uh, of this of my school and podcast, um, who are 
trying to create a career and uh, hopefully establish relationships with artists um, where they do come back multiple times, where it is a multi-year, multi-album type of, type of deal. What advice would you give them in order to try to try to secure that repeat business? Well, probably, I mean, I mean, honestly, a big part of it is just how you treat people. Like, don't be a dick. Yeah. Be open to what's happening because we, we had a couple times where we stepped away to work with someone else and then we came back for Alaska, but then also for Colors. Metal Blade had the idea for us to work with David Bottrell up in Toronto and we came back and mixed it here. And then um, we came back to Jamie for the Parallax 2 and really... You know, for us, it's it's that relationship. It's you know, he's he's another member of of our band, and it's we just feel so comfortable coming over here. I mean, this is what two miles from our practice space. Yeah, you know what I mean. And it's you know, for us to be here for a month, we you know we go home at night. We drive in, um, and it's it's just so comfortable. It's what we do, and we brought Jens Bogren into the mix as well to to be part of the last couple records and and work with mixing and mastering. And we found we found this great um, you know sort of worldwide unison. You know, and we just met him actually. I don't know if you knew that, Jamie. We just met Jens on our last Europe, European tour. It was. It was wild, and and oh, that's awesome! Yeah, we were explaining to him, you know, what our relationship is like with you, and how long it's been, and all that we've gone through. And he's got bands like that in Europe that he's worked with, like Pain of Salvation, and you know, some of the bigger metal bands that he's worked with over and over and over. And it's it's like, yeah, he's just down the road, but also, I mean, he gets our music. Like, we've done all this great work together, and you know, we're going to continue to doing great work together. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I understand the the proximity and the convenience is there, but I mean, if if Jamie was a dick or sucked, <laughs> you know, like, I don't think you'd go back. They're very charitable guys, regardless of how close. <laughs> Both other situations that that we had with other people, you know, had just these major negatives to them. So yeah, that's I mean, that's that's a big part of it, you know, as well as just being good at your job. Obviously, I mean, that's the obvious. So. Yeah, being good. I mean, it's that's it's definitely important. You know, you have to, you know, do the do the work that needs to be done. But yeah, I think like you know, having that family vibe and just you know, just being a cool, pleasant person to hang around. I mean, all that stuff's important. And a lot of producers, uh, you know, they they you know all you know all the studios coming up. Yeah, you got to know that. You got to you know just treat people how you want to be treated. You know, as far as how you bill them, how you charge them, how you you know your your work ethic. You know what I'm saying? If like. Uh, you know, they, they want to see you care about the project as much as they do. You know, it's like, and, that, you know, all that stuff's important, I think. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's kept, uh, you know, kept a lot of, you know, my return clients, including BT BAM. You know, it's just they know I'm going to work hard. It might not be the best stuff out there, but I'm going to try, you know. And, I, and uh, you know, I try to, uh, you know, uh, take it up a notch every time, you know. And I think they know that. And, uh, and I know they're trying to do that the same thing, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, there's a common goal or whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, common trajectory between the, you know, between our crafts or whatever. So it sounds to me like the aspect of being good at what you do is just assumed. Dan, you guys are just not going to go to someone that's not good at what he does. So like, that's just a base level assumption. So right. with that assumed, it's the other stuff that, makes the difference. Absolutely. I mean, 
you know, plus Jamie's got an electric sitar, so. <laughs> yeah. You I do? Mean. Yeah. I lure them here with trinkets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. I have an interesting percussion collection. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back in time a little bit and kind of talk through some of these records. Is Alaska the first one you guys made together? Yeah. So, yeah, that would be the first, uh, yeah, the Alaska demo and then the Alaska full length, which I recorded and uh, I did not mix that record. Right. So Alaska is kind of when, at least, I mean, I had heard of the band before that. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Alaska is kind of when the band started to really break. Oh, yeah. When that album came out was right probably about when people stopped buying records uh, in the way that they did. And so that that's our highest selling album. I, th- I think people might think that it was Colors, but that was, you know, that was already into that era where— um, or that was on, kind of on the decline for everyone across the board. So, yeah, I think Alaska, we, you know, we were, because there were the new personalities coming in, you know, they were bringing new personalities musically and with them as well. I mean, I was just out of college. I was hopped up on fucking Oingo Boingo and Queen, you know, uh, Gentle, awesome. G- Gentle Giant, like all this prog stuff that I was really like, guys, this is what I'm about. And some of it they knew and were into, other stuff— you know, they've gotten into over time. Um, but the, yeah, there there was just, there was a lot of new stuff happening on Alaska. And so I think that's when it started opening up some new doors. Dan, Blake, and uh, Dusty really, when, when they joined the band, that it, it actually, the band sound changed. You know, Dan's obviously a huge contributor uh, musically. And, you know, Dusty has riffs and Blake's drumming, obviously, or whatever. It just kind of, uh, came together i think it you know even though i'm a huge fan of the old stuff also but in terms of a you know a, a style of music or whatever that appeals to even more people i think when when the guys all came together there was this like some sort of magic uh uh you know uh, combination that happened on on alaska that's been carried forth and and developed more so over the years when you were sitting there working on it like could you feel that it was going to kind of turn into a big thing no way and i mean and it's it's like that every time. I mean, people have been asking recently, you know, we just got nominated for our first Grammy or whatever, which is really cool. But, you know, they asked, like, like what we've done different or, like, what was our approach going into it? And it's, I mean, we're just writing every time we're trying to just satisfy ourselves. And I think that's why, you know, Jamie said from day one when the guys came in and he asked them, why are you playing this style of music? It's just what they wanted to play. And we've progressed as a band and we've moved and moved and moved. And a lot of that is just because it's our personal tastes have changed over time. Um, yep. You know, we, we, we've just grown in, in what we're about and, and what we're trying to accomplish musically. There was a period for sure where we were trying to fit as many notes in as possible. And, and now we're trying to just, just write tunes and whatever makes us happy I, at that time too. I mean, we wrote that record, Alaska, in in Blake's old bedroom at his parents' house, like, just all the amps on, you know, it was just, it was so loud, and, like, you were having to explain, like, a complicated section to everyone, and, I mean, it was, it was tough, and, I mean, there's definitely moments of that that were definitely, like, frustrating, because there's all these new personalities coming together, all of a sudden you had two new musical voices coming in, uh, contributing big chunks of music, which was exciting and cool, I know, for Tommy and Paul, but as far as getting, like, what are we doing, you know? And then when we did Colors, 
it all smoothed out. We'd been on the road for two and a half years, and all of a sudden we came in and and it just it just happened. And um, for me, that's really when the musical awakening happened was with Colors. But we definitely set the groundwork for it with Alaska. So, Jamie, as far as you're concerned, as a producer, how do you navigate a situation like on Alaska where you have the direction of a band that has already been set and which is good? Like, you know, like the they were just fine without the new guys. Um, but the new guys come in and it's even better. But, you know, it's not, you know, nothing just integrates seamlessly right away like dan just said there's a challenge to it like how do you navigate that as a producer and in this case specifically well in this case like i said i mean luckily you know even dan talks about there was you know some difficulties or whatever with alaska maybe um, you know creating the record but like when they came to the studio everything was worked out you know yeah and as far as i'm concerned there were more issues on my side uh, with that record than uh, than <laughs> with the band, uh, we actually tracked the drums. We tracked the drums at the Fidelitorium, and uh, we let the house guy, um, fantastic guy and producer named Mitch Easter. The fuck is the Fidelitorium? <laughs> it's a rad. It's a rad studio in uh, here in Kernersville, North Carolina. I wasn't sure if it was like a place where like gladiators fight or something. <laughs> <laughs> they they could they could in high fidelity. <laughs> they could okay. Yes. <laughs> No, but yeah, it's amazing room or whatever. But we tracked the drums there because you know we want to take the record up a notch. You know, it was the first record I had done for them uh, for Victory Records uh, specifically, and uh, so we wanted to track the drums there. So we booked the three days, tracked all the drums. But I'll, you know, I let um, you know I didn't know a lot about uh, his studio or the gear. He, he has a, a lot of vintage gear and all vintage mics. At the time, he had no industry standard mics. Uh, he didn't even have like you know an SM57, which was. You know, so oh, I love those places. Yeah. So I go in there and I'm like, I don't know what any of these mics do. So I just let him choose the <laughs> mics for the drums. And so we proceed to record the whole record. We get, I get the files to my place and realize that the hi-hat is louder in the snare mic than the snare is because he used a tube condenser on the snare, which is a huge no-no hey. for metal. You know, now, you know, looking back, I was like... I just didn't pay attention. I just trusted him, and uh, I've been in those scenarios before. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it was I, it was sickening. I, I was like, I got to tell Blake, we got to retract the drums. So we had to retract all the drums at my place uh, for that record or whatever because because of that. And uh, you know, it was a failure on my part in a way. You know, even though I'm not going to take all the blame really, but. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, so this is this is interesting to me though, because like we've all made those types of mistakes as producers. We're like something gets fucked, and you kind of got to redo everything, or you know, you didn't record the rooms on five songs. Yeah, <laughs> you got to redo them. Like something like that happens, and I've only heard of one person getting fired in a situation like that. Um, but when it's happening, it's fucking traumatic. Like, it's so scary. Like, like it's the worst. Um, but how did you handle it in order to, you know, keep it cool? I don't know. I just, I was like, I got to tell them, you know. And, uh, you know, luckily, like I said, we were all longtime friends. You know, I'd recorded, you know, I recorded uh, Blake since he's 15 years old, you know, when he in, in his previous projects, uh, Glass Casket and, and before. You have, to, you have to remember at that time, me and Blake and Dusty were all 20 years old. So. Yeah. I mean, we were all excited. Blake was bummed, but if I remember, Blake might have tracked those drums in a day. 
when he had to redo them. He might have just done them. So it wasn't the end of the world. Okay. Yeah, it worked out for the best because the performance was even better, you know, because he was in the big studio and he was kind of— He was probably pissed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, freaked out or whatever. Yeah, he probably came in and gave him some extra juice for those double bass blasts and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it, it was one of those things. It's like, you know, I, we were debating. It was like, it's either we go with straight triggers or whatever on the drums or, uh, you know, and, you know— with BT Bam, it's always been you know high integrity. Let's keep it keep this stuff as real and natural as possible, you know. Um, so, you know, and Blake's an amazing drummer, so we can we can do that. And uh, you know, so it's either like let's re, either we got to re-record it or we're gonna have to sam, sam, use samples for the snare. And uh, uh, that was the debate and you know, the the uh, discussion. And uh, you know, of course, he chose to let's just retrack it, and he he did it quickly and. Uh, Luckily, it was just a minor speed bump, and we got over that. And, uh, you know, uh, definitely a learning experience there. Uh, and then we learned even more when we got up to Boston and mixed the record. That was an interesting experience as well. It was. How so? <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be an interesting story. Well, yeah, the, 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 you know, like I said, there the, again, we got another amazing producer engineer guy who just uh, does it his way, you know. It was so weird because we were— Mixing in the room, he'd be doing his thing all day. We'd we'd be off in the other room just goofing off, and then he'd be like, "Okay, come in," and he would play us this song so loud it would just be <laughs> blaring at us. And you'd be like, "Yeah, I guess it. I guess it's good. I don't know. You know that for us, that was the only time we did that, and that was weird." That's supposed to trick bands into liking it. That's yeah, exactly. Funny. So it did it. That didn't work on you guys. Well, he would, you know, he was old school, you know, he was, uh, his version of metal in his mind is like Motorhead and uh, stuff like that, you know, and then, like the guys were like, yeah, we want to metal, you know, at that time we're talking about more modern metal, you know, you know, not fake productions, but cleaner, like maybe Kill Switch Engage type production or yeah, something. okay. And that's what we had gone for with drum sounds and uh, guitar tones and things. But, you know, of course I recorded DIs uh, at the time and stuff, and he proceeded just to throw all our guitar sounds out and reamp with all, you know, an old JMP Marshall, cool stuff, you know, and it got good sounds or whatever, but it wasn't, wasn't what we were going for. You know, it wasn't what the band asked for and wasn't what I went for when I did the record. And, uh, and yeah, he was, he literally just wouldn't let, you know, I remember Blake saying, Hey, man, can I get a little more high end on my snare drum? And he turned around and seriously said, Fuck you to Blake. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> His mentality is like, I'm hired to mix the record. I'm going to mix the record. Don't tell me what to you know, do. And it's just insanity to me. You know, I was like, I remember I left early. There's a line between not, Letting someone fuck up the mix were versus just being an asshole. I mean, he was upset. I think you know the fact that you know it's like we had to track at my parents' space. We didn't track any drum rooms, you know. And instead of you know using one of his you know you know lexicon or uh, you know even tied you know environment simulation units, he proceeded to, to waste a whole day and a half building a pseudo PA in the live room with bass and guitar rigs to like emulate this weird drum room thing and then he put like a speaker on a snare drum trying to get like more snares I, I, he did a whole bunch of weird experimental stuff and honestly <laughs> in retrospect wasted a lot of time and uh, of course it did yeah I mean I, under, I understand what he was trying to do he was just trying to get it to where he was used to it I think he had actually recorded and, and mixed the uh, Silent Circus record and uh, you know it actually didn't sound bad to me you know after it was mastered and all that stuff uh, and I think he was upset about not 
recording and mixing Alaska. It seemed like he had a chip on his shoulder from day one. Like he just didn't like the fact that I was there and I was, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just the vibe I got. And, uh, you know, and he just, uh, I don't know. He just, he just, uh, he didn't pull it through, uh, exactly the way anybody wanted. And it's, you know, at that time, you know, it was, he was mixing on analog console, you know, Neve, Neve console with a bunch of analog gear. So it wasn't like the current situation, like where you can, you can tweak over time. And it was literally like, once we leave here, this is it, you know, uh, just everything's to zero and just be happy with it. And that's what, you know, the record that exists now is, uh, is where it was left, uh, you know, that uh, from that trip in Boston. From here on out, when, uh, People ask for Q&A sessions uh, about the best way to deal with client notes and client suggestions. And it's going to be like two words. <laughs> Fuck you. <That's>, yeah. <laughs> just just say that if you want to win them over. Oh, I've wanted to say that before. You know, when, you know, I've had people be like, you know, hey, we want our record to sound like this. And I totally make <laughs> it sound like that. And then they come in, they're like, actually, I just heard this new record. I want it to sound like this. It's just like, Fuck you. No, I just spent... <laughs> 15 hours making it sound like you wanted it to sound the first day you were here. That's insane. I mean, I don't mind. You know, of course, I never say that. I'm like, yes, sir. Yeah. I'll do it. Uh, well, well, that's that's the thing is like you would never say that. That's no, the. Yeah. I mean, it's very like, funny. You it, might feel it. It kind of makes him kick ass, really. I, I definitely respect him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of that Boston trip was one of the nights, one of the first nights we got Chinese food and. <laughs> Jamie either hadn't had Chinese or was just real unfamiliar and was like, oh, what should I get? And someone was like, I'll get like sweet and sour chicken. That'll be safe. And they put the sauce on the side. And he's like, okay. And it comes and he takes one look at the sauce and he opens the fridge and gets out some ketchup. <laughs> wow. Dude, I was, I was like, Southern oh, Redneck. It was awesome. I literally had never, I had never eaten Chinese food. Amazing. Ever. I love it. It was great. So I was like, I was like, I'll just put some ketchup on this. <laughs> Roll out straight red. Hey everybody, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, 
This stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. That reminds me of when I took the contortionist out for sushi uh, when I was recording one of their albums, I for, which the one I did, like at some night towards the end, I took them out for sushi. And it turns out that they had never, two of them had never even heard of it before. <laughs> Indiana, man. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Not Indiana. a hot spot for sushi. <laughs> That's great. All right, so you guys finish up the record. Sounds like it was kind of <laughs> had a bunch of challenges and interesting situations, but the record crushes. I mean, I know that the band grew a ton from that. And uh, then what? Well, then we came to do, well, I guess we did the covers record together. And that was the last one we did oh, yeah. at, um, in 2006, that was the last one we did at your parents' house. And when we did yep. Colors, um, you had just moved into this house and it was the first, you had just built this vocal booth that I'm in right yep. now, sw- sweating my ass off. And, uh, oh, yeah, sorry about it. <laughs> no, it's okay. For good cause. And then, um, so Colors was the first thing that you had done here and it felt, it felt appropriate, I think, you know? Yeah. Appropriate as in like news, new reality for the band. For everyone. New reality for Jamie sort yep, of thing. Absolutely. Like everybody, everybody has leveled up. Yeah. Yeah. I had upgraded my gear, you know, in between every record, I try to, you know, take things up an, another level, you know, as far as what I'm doing gear wise and knowledge wise. So, you know, I had upgraded the gear and upgraded the space and uh, obviously, you know, their new material was next level. And it was, just, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, I really feel like, I mean, there's a lot of work that went into it on everybody's part or whatever, but it just all came together almost magically. I mean, I never, when I recorded BT Bam in 2000, you know, I remember doing a sound for Prayer for Cleansing at a local venue, and there's like 35 people, you know, and I never thought this is the biggest band I'm ever going to work with, you know. And, and uh, you know, even up through Alaska, you know, the BT Bam guys were already pretty much the biggest band I'd worked with, but I never realized they would be the world, you know, dominant figure that they are now, you know. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know. But it's a, you know, but at the same time, it's like I really didn't care or really didn't think about it. Like I just knew I was a fan and I liked the stuff, you know. But still, man, it must have been cool. Like I've always thought that one of the coolest things you can do with friends is do something successful together and both be able to both share that experience of conquering something. That's always been one of my goals is to, you know, obviously I have professional goals of where I'd like to be and go and all that. But one of the goals along with that is to do it with friends because it just, it means a lot more if you can share that with your compadres basically. But was there like a sense of like, fuck yeah, when you guys got in to do colors, like we are, we're all actually doing this? It felt like it was a, you know, it was a creative explosion. It was like for us, you know, we we were just opening up our heads and it was all pouring out. And we were just, we were just having a blast. We had so much fun doing that record and tracking it. Um, I remember like that period, because we, we took quite a bit off to write it. I mean, especially at that point in our career, I mean, we were really strapped for money. So it was really just rice and beans and, and creativity. I mean, we were just having a blast and... 
you know, the, the recording is definitely indicative of it. The like studio videos and all the photos that we did when Chuck came over <laughs> and shot photos that were in the, the layout. We had Adam from Fear Before come out and sing and we just had so much fun. I mean, that was that's when we turned that corner for sure. Uh, I think uh, I think we all learned a lot when we did the covers record about more commercialized music in terms of like how layered it was and things like that. We were trying to, you know, the covers records were really quick. I mean, it was like 70 minutes. We had like two weeks to record, mix and master everything, you know, and, um, and the guys were largely learning and on the spot and like as, as far as all the layers and things. And we applied a lot of that uh, to colors, you know, for the first time with all the extra layering and the, uh, uh, the fun stuff, percussion and, uh, you know, uh, more keys and uh, extra guitar layers, things of that nature or whatever. And uh, uh, that was a lot of fun because, it, you know, it was like the first time and it, it just uh, it gave the record a, a slicker, more professional, more worldly feel or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had fucking do didgeridoo remember. on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, just uh, and uh, there were there were monkeys on that record, by the way. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, do you remember what song? <laughs> In, informal gluttony. <laughs> what album has the horse? <laughs> horse, amazing. That's the next one. That was the great misdirect, disease, injury, madness. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like colors was kind of a a labor of love sort of situation where, and like real good vibes throughout. Like what? Like it reminds me a little bit of uh, when uh, I've heard of uh, Mike Tyson talking about. The peak, not saying that this was your peak or anything, but he was talking about the peak of his career and saying that the rest of the world thought that he was super scary, obviously, because he was. But while he was knocking people out, it was just a creative explosion. And (laughs) like he was just loving life. Like it was all happiness and love That's for him funny. the whole time. Like, yeah. Because he was so like locked in to what he was doing and it was so like who he was, you know, wow. he was fulfilling himself. So it sounds to me like you guys were kind of like entering that sort of headspace from yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. I would say for me too. Yeah, I just had bought my own place and had met my wife and everything was positive, you know, at that moment or whatever, you know. So I felt like my edu- my self-education of audio engineering was kind of starting to come together at that point, you know. I was finally feeling, I felt like I was finally getting it, you know, and, you know, I had the, some, some better gear and, uh, you know, better grasp or whatever. The vision of a sound that you have in your head was starting to actually come out the speakers. Yeah, exactly. Or being able to get the sounds that, you know, I had heard, you know, other. Yeah you know, engineers get and stuff like that. And uh, just to, to get us a yeah, professional uh, sounding vibe or whatever that I, yeah, that I always wanted to, to have for the band, you know, uh, every time the band has tried to record with other people, I'd always be stoked. You know, I'm like, you know, cause I want to see the band, you know, take everything to the next level, you know, and, uh, you know, and a couple of times it kind of didn't work out and it, you know, it's kind of upsetting to me. You know, I wanted to, you know, I want to hear it. Cause like I said, I'm a fan and, uh, you know, and I want to hear the stuff sound kick ass. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, if these other guys can't do it, it's like, I here again, I'm back. I, I have to figure out how to make this, you know, sound kick ass or whatever, you know, it relies on me or whatever. So, um, you know, and I felt like, I, you know, I got a little closer or whatever, getting a little closer to what I want for the band, you know, and for myself or whatever, you know. And I uh, think that's constantly changing because our music's constantly changing, and we're always throwing yeah. new new stuff at you, different reference points, and I mean, just there's a lot going on within the compositions. 
yeah, all our taste and music and even production styles and values have changed. Uh, and it's different for, like I said, the problem with me in production is like, I, I enjoy the, the slick produced stuff. I enjoy the raw. If it's appropriate for the music and for the band, or for the for the project, why is that a problem? Well, because you know a lot of a lot of producers, I think the more successful producers kind of have a sound. It seems like you know. I think that's a myth. Uh, the reason I think that's a myth is because if you look at Andy, like just think about Andy Sneap, for instance. Um, like because people said that about him a lot, and uh, and it was based off of two Kill Switch records that kind of had a similar sort of thing to them, uh, and. I kind of get what they were saying, but if you actually A, B, like, all the stuff from where he was, like, the man, he still is the man, but, I mean, like, the man that did all the records. Like, if you A, B, like, Killswitch to Testament to Nevermore to, like, all the bands he did back then, they all sound totally different. And the same with my partner, Joey Sturgis. Like, he gets accused of that a lot, but then if you actually listen to his records, like, they're all bands that I don't listen to very much, but like I actually did this and uh, checked them out back to back to back. And I was like, these sound nothing alike. Yeah. I think in terms of like, you know, sound, but I'm thinking even just in, in, in deeper in terms of like, Hey, are the drums quantized and sample blended and all this stuff? Or is, the, or is everything completely loose and natural, like 70 style, you know, even that diverse, you know, and, and I enjoy both, you know, most producers do, a more slick modern type thing, or most producers do like the old school, you know, and, and, and I kind of always straddled the fence and I think it kind of works for BT Pam because they have some moments to benefit from the, that metal in your face, everything, you know, clear, crisp, whatever. But then they have these other moments where it, you know, the jazz moments or the big band moments where you need to have the knowledge and, or at least need to, uh, you know, want to find out how to get those old school sounds and things for the specific parts and stuff. And, um, I think it's a, a unique thing that, you know, it's like they obviously bring a lot of different styles to the table. And obviously, you know, I I think uh, uh, for this particular project or whatever, it's helped. It's it's helped that I enjoy a lot of different styles and uh, productions and things like that. So, Dan, what do you think was the biggest challenge on Colors? Because it sounds to me like you guys both think that it was a very positive experience. But, like, was there anything that you remember, like, being... Like I remember you, you said earlier, like that the going to Boston was very interesting, but sounds like there weren't those types of things going on. But for you, like as a musician or even as a band or like in the production, whatever, what was the biggest challenge on colors? Like there had to be something. As far as recording, I mean, that was the first time we adopted doing the one song at a time thing for, for all the rhythm stuff. My only memories of of colors are are really just just positive because um the album was kind of birthed out of you know this negative period doing Ozfest this horrible summer and like it just it fueled us like creatively like we really I think felt like we ah uh, okay like we were going to do our own thing we were going to really separate ourselves and it's hard to think of a negative I mean we really it was smooth sailing I remember the mixes going real smooth and um, you know Tony at Victory telling us it was going to be our dark side of the moon and we were like yeah that's bullshit but thanks you know like (laughs) (laughs) but so if I'm understanding correctly then it seems like Alaska making it was like one of those things where you really have to will it into being because like it's not going to just present itself like you had to will it the fuck into being and then you had to do 
I've done Ozfest, man. I know how hard of a tour that is. And so like, so you had to do a bunch of real challenging, grinding touring to, to level up, but then, you know, basically kind of put hair on your chest as a band or something like, like you guys did level up from it. And then, uh, you had all that momentum going from everything that you had done leading up is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, and I think, that, you know, even like really directly on the record, I think the last song, White Walls, which pulls the whole album together and is kind of, you know, become this kind of monumental song for us was actually like, like the lyric, it's actually about like kind of our experience that summer and, and really just breaking out and doing that thing. And it just really pushed us creatively, I think. I don't know. Sometimes you need a little nudge, I guess. I don't, I don't know. It, it really, we, we've, we've had these moments in our career as well, not really in writing, but more in touring or these different experiences, you know, business-wise where we really bond over negativity, like negative stuff, you know, and it's a great, great way to form group bonding over kind of complaining and making jokes about your situation. And, um, you know, we've had this longevity for so long. I, I think we're able to find the light in those moments, which is which is nice. I mean, if you can't find the light in those moments, there's no way you're going to make it through this no. industry. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, like, the Alaska record, and, and he's, like, as he mentioned, maybe they're uh, touring and stuff. It, it feels like, to me, it, it kind of pushed them around a corner. You know, it kind of made you turn a corner, you know, or made you turn, you know, into a slightly different direction, you know. Totally. In, in everything. In the, you know. Yeah, if you look at our touring schedules, just compared to those two records, whereas we were really torn with more, I don't, what would you say, like metal core kind of bands, then Colors came out, we were torn with Dream Theater, we are torn with Meshuga, you know, Dillinger, uh, Mastodon, you know, that it just, it kind of just opened us into a whole new world where, you know, we we've, were really adopted as a progressive band kind of for the first time and... That hasn't stopped, really, you know. Was that the tour that you did direct support for Dream Theater on that Opeth was before you guys? No, fuck no, no. Um, we were we were second of second of four. Opeth was was direct support. Oh no! Oh, you were second of four. Okay, sorry. Yes. Okay, I remembered it differently. <laughs> I was uh, dating someone that was with Opeth back then, and uh, so I actually tagged along. I never actually met you. Okay. Uh, what was her What was her name? Aaron. Yeah. Aaron. Uh, how did I remember that? That's incredible. I just because you got a good memory. Uh, yeah. Back <laughs> I in do not have two, a good memory. Two thousand eight. Yeah. Wow. Like I tagged along for like five days or something, and like I was somewhat familiar with you guys. I didn't like know all your stuff, but I was somewhat familiar. And I watched you guys from side stage uh, one of the nights or two of the nights, and I was like, man, these guys are actually really good, and they're a lot bigger than I realized. This is really cool. Um, and I, I just thought it was very cool to see because it's really rare for bands in this genre to turn into something. Uh, it's just so, it's just so rare. Um, it's a very, very cool thing to see, but, uh, yeah, I remember that. So that was kind of, it's interesting to hear though, from you, what, that time period represented for you guys. So that was kind of like when you were starting to really like level into, I guess, the big boys or something, like play with like the big bands and stuff. Yeah, really just, you know, people that that we were actually listening to ourselves, mm -hmm. that we were excited to meet. And thankfully, I mean, 
we had so many positive experiences. I mean, the guys in Dream Theater have, I don't remember if it was the Automata or maybe Coma Ecliptic before it where, you know, Dusty just emailed, you know, John Petrucci about some pedal settings and he wrote right back with like this real descriptive thing, you know, and, you know, they, they've, they've been really great to us over the years and it's, it's really nice. You, I think for us, we we had the experience touring with some, you know, some, you know, European metal bands that you know just wouldn't acknowledge you and this and that, and we totally expected that from Dream Theater, and we looked up to them, and that would have been what it was, and and they certainly could act that way if they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, but they were the ones who brought us on the tour because Mike Mike That's was awesome. a fan at the time, and the crew was so nice to us, and that you know, has shown us, I mean, we wouldn't have acted any other way, you know, as time went on with bands opening for us. But, you know, I think that just showed us that a band could get to that point and still be normal, cool guys who are just these great musicians, you know. Do you feel like they kind of felt like you guys were not exactly like a younger version of themselves, but like one of the few bands that like was doing it right? in the, I guess, the tradition that they kind of were like the kings of or something, um, like kind of like a mentorship role almost? I think at that time, you know, I mean, we didn't really have a blueprint for another band that was mixing the stuff that that we really were. And we just, we liked music like Dream Theater, you know, but we liked Smashing Pumpkins. We liked all this stuff. And, um, you know, so in that regard, I think we did probably stick out and... That's probably a reason why, you know, Mike Portnoy or someone, you know, was into our band because he could have heard a, a bit of, you know, what they were doing or, or just the idea that they were about, which is this progressive idea, which, you know, th- through the 90s and the late 90s was definitely kind of like a dirty word and it disappeared. And that was kind of the, the era right, of exactly. it just kind of coming back to the surface um, a little bit. So it's nice. And I think it's it's just about... You know, musicians, musicianship and musicality and stuff. It was just like that thing was kind of coming back. People having an interest in just seeing people, you know, play their asses off on stage. It's, it's kind of cool. I remember Mike Portnoy saying in a magazine article that he, that BT Bam kind of represents the new progressive movement, you know, in a, in a way. So I think that's uh, why he wanted to bring the guys on and, you know, maybe bringing BT Bam on with them on that tour kind of introduced them to a younger generation of potential prog fans for Dream Theater and then vice versa, you know. So uh, I think uh, that's quite genius of Mike Portnoy. I actually was singing the same thing. It seemed like a good move for everybody to do that. So, Jamie, and so while this is happening, while they're starting to tour with all these awesome bands and really, like, get out there um, and get solidified as one of the top progressive bands, like, was this translating in terms of how booked you were at the studio and I guess the quality of clients you were starting to attract? Oh yeah. I mean, BT band's always kind of been that way. You know, early, you know, when I first started, it was my band, you know, we were kind of popular locally and influencing other local bands to book studio time with me, including BT band. I guess they heard my band's record and things. Uh, but the, uh, but yeah, after that, I mean, it's, you know, largely been, you know, a lot of my business is from directly from BT BAM and, uh, you know, so a few of the other bands that I've recorded that have, uh, been somewhat successful and so forth. And, uh, but yeah, the bigger BT BAM gets, the more, the more bands come to me, you know, the more bigger band, like obviously, uh, you know, with the contortionist guys being friends and fans of BT BAM, I think that's, you know, they're like, Hey, let's, 
uh, I guess they went on tour and Tommy talked to him. He's like, hey, why don't you try Jamie? And um, I think that's kind of how that happened. And the band four today, they had uh, some success for a minute. And, uh, you know, obviously they were BT BAM fans. And, you know, it's just a lot of my work now is in the progressive realm. And it's, uh, uh, you know, and I think that's, you know, it's directly related to, you know, BT BAM and their success and influence in the, uh, you know, progressive, you know, community or whatever. So, I mean, that's how it works. It seems like for a lot of producers is that they do have the band that they get known for. And then they get a bunch of business that want to sound exactly like that one big band, but they also get a bunch of other bands that are just good bands who like that production and just want to go to the same guy who was able to create that. What percentage or ratio do you have of like people who are just like, I want to sound exactly like that BT BAM record and uh, like just want to be BT BAM versus bands that are just fans of what happened musically and production wise and just want the same level of care or whatnot? Yeah, I I mean, luckily, I don't think there's, you know, uh, well, I I don't I haven't had a lot of bands that want to sound exactly like BT BAM. You know, I've had people, you know, like, hey, we want our drums to sound like Blake's or our bass to sound like Dan's or, you know, certain elements or whatever. Uh, but usually, you know, usually there's maybe a guy in the band or, a, you know, an aspect that, you know, they want to sound similar. But, um, you know, but, yeah, they, you know, I think, you know, it's a, you know, combination. I get a lot of, you know, strangely, like I said, um, a lot of bands and they'll come to me and they'll be inspired by BT band, but they, you know, I usually try to give people a speech when they come in to record, you know, I, I usually try to tell them, I don't really like to try to copy anything. You know, I'm a big fan of let's let the gear, your selection and gear and stuff, let's let it sound the way it sounds and let's try to find your sound. And even if they do want to have sound like a certain band, I try to get an idea of what they dig, you know, to kind of to get it in the ballpark or something that they'll be happy with. But I try to sell everybody on the idea you know that originality is best and I truly believe that I think you know uh, emulation might get you so x far in in the business but ultimately for ultimate success you have to be an exclusive product you know and uh, totally. it's best to just sound the way you sound you know totally agree sounds like colors is just a great time for everybody what came next like what was the what do you think was the next step and what was next for you guys in terms of your working relationship? It's all been smooth. I mean, as far as I can remember, is recordings like uh, with, with a great misdirect and... Uh, you know, because you have to think that our songs are all... Everything's so put together and we just come here and do it and we have fun and we cook out together here. Like, we have meals with Jamie's family. Yeah, there's baseball in the back here. Yeah, so it's... The memories are only good. I mean, we don't... We don't have snags here. We have snags elsewhere, but... Not when we come to the basement. And those snags are the reason you keep coming back. Right, so, right. Or part of it, sounds like. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We've always done our best records here. Like, we've always done our best material here. So it's, yeah. Do you mind if, without, like, throwing anyone under the bus, if we talk a little bit about those snags? There's a lot to be said for working with someone that gets you. and. I kind of want to give people a picture for what not getting you is like without throwing anyone under the bus or anything. We don't need to name names. Well, yeah. So so I mentioned like, you know, how, how he had us chart out those songs. That's one thing. But I think there's like this other idea of like your – the problems in your personal life really spilling out into your – 
professional workspace, especially for like a guy that we only knew for 10 days, 15 days. We weren't up there very long. That's a killer. I've seen that one. Because we had, you know, just frustration on his end. You know, the number of times we would do something or we'd reach a point in a song and he would just put his his head in his hands. Like, why is this happening to me? Why am I doing this? And we're just sitting there like, fuck. Like, <laughs> That's got to make you guys feel great. <laughs> well, like, Jamie will tell you, like, I think we're, even the times that I think we're struggling in the studio, he's like, you have no idea. You know, if there's a part, if there's a solo <laughs> where Paul has to do it 50 times, or if I get stuck on some rhythm, you know, Jamie's like, literally, you're fine. Don't worry. And this guy made us feel like maybe we're being an inconvenience. Maybe we suck. I don't know. Like, I don't know. So <laughs> how are you going to do your best work if that's how you feel? I know. How are you going to be able to like, really like go there artistically if you feel like your presence is pissing off the person who you're supposed to be working with. As a producer, and I'll tell you know all the you know the up and coming producers out there. I mean, you can't do that to you can't do that to your clients. I don't think it's a good idea, and I don't I don't I also I don't like I don't like it when other band members or other people involved with a project are in the same room and do that. Also, I see that all the time. Um, to where, like, you know, somebody's berating the vocalist while he's tracking vocals or trying to make him do certain things. And, you know, it's like I've learned that keeping things positive and light and, and, and keeping the energy good, you know, is is ideal. Unless the guy is supposed to sound pissed off or have, you know, lyrical content or, you know, an aggressive performance where you do want to piss the guy off, then maybe it could work or whatever. But it has to be – you have to do it as an, instrumentally. You have to do it – when it's uh, appropriate or whatever, but yeah, I've seen it, you know, you know, it can get frustrating for us producers when somebody can't nail something or whatever within a timely, f you know, fashion, but it's not going to help anything if you just, uh, if you get really negative with them about it or whatever, usually I usually try to either you give them the time or if we can't take the time, like, Hey, let's, let's come back to this later when you're fresh, maybe rehearse some more things like that or whatever. And the BT BAM guys, it's, we don't even have to speak about that. You know, it's like they, they get stuck on something. They're like, let's just come back to that. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, uh, you know, we'll rework. I mean, Paul, we spent a whole day on that desert or song acoustic part. Literally he came back after lunch and just had had to rewrite it, rework how he played it, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, to get it down cleanly. And uh, that's fine. That's how it should be, you know, and it's, it sounds great. So, yeah. One thing I'm curious about is that, uh, so if your songs are all worked out in advance, you know, 95% or 99%, whatever it is, like very worked out in advance to where you guys don't need someone to like write your parts for you or any of that stuff, like you're coming in very prepared. You guys just don't, you just don't need that. But at the same time, I hear Jamie, you're saying that you do try to push them to be their best selves, like the best version of the band possible. Like, where's the line? Uh, first, I want to hear from both of you. Like, Dan, where do you see the line and what is cool for a producer to to come at you with. Uh, and then Jamie, where do you see the line between where you're just helping the band be their best selves versus you're trying to take over their shit and they don't need it? Well, I'm trying to think. Cause like over time, I feel like I've, I've learned when a, a take isn't good for me. I think we have good intuition. There's not a lot of time where we play something and then we look at Jamie like, eh, 
Was that it? You know, it's yeah. We're we're usually pretty in sync. You know, as far as yeah. our working relationship, we know. If it needs to be doing again, it's just like I don't even have to say it. You know, usually I say one more time. It's one more time. You know, it's one always, more time. Yeah, that always means do it again until it's right. Uh, but you know, we usually both just know when it's the good take. You know. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's something that I've I've picked up over time. Obviously, you guys don't need that much help. Is it just right? I guess it wears too much. It's probably different for every band. Right. Yeah. Well, these guys are open minded to anything. You know, usually if I have an idea, I'll throw it on the table. Uh, one thing I've learned specifically with this band uh, is just wait till everything's done to make judgment. Because, I mean, there's, I mean, honestly, Dan, there's been times that Dan will play this crazy counter melody bass line. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense to me. <laughs> but it's because I, I haven't heard the, the, the key line yet. You know, Dan writes compositionally. It's not. Because he's not playing the guitar riff half the time, you know. So it's like, you know, early in my career, I'd have been like, that that bass line is too busy. It's going to take away, you know. That would be my initial instinct, you know. And for most metal bands, that would be the case. Um, you know, it, it would probably actually end up being true. But I've learned to just let the band do what they're doing, especially bands who seem like they have their stuff together and worked out. Listen to the whole thing and then put ideas down. A lot of times, like any concerns I've ha- I had early in the project, they resolve themselves once I hear the full picture. Either I learn to like it or I realize, you know, that my initial instinct was wrong or off base or, you know, something of that nature or whatever. So I think, uh, you know, for the, uh, uh, you know, in the case with these guys, like I said, our, our, like I said, our preferences and our instincts and intuitions are so, so in sync after all these years of working. I think it's just, you know, I just think we all head in the same directions anyway, you know. I might have an idea for a harmony or something, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, that would be cool. I think each member has kind of like a different relationship. And and Jamie's got all these different skill sets. I mean, he's a drummer first and foremost, but he's got such a great sense of pitch and melody. And I mean, he helps sometimes in shaping guitar solos and and finishing out phrases of because even though our compositions are totally put together, there are sometimes parts where a guitar solo isn't written until he gets to the studio. Or, you know, I know, like, if Tommy talked about his relationship with Jamie, I mean, that's a whole different beast, you know? And there's times where, you know, Tommy suffers sometimes from being, like, not really confident in himself. And we're like, dude, you're, like, great, and everything that you write is awesome. And I know it's not usually till he's in this hot box that I'm in right now, um, with Jamie that, that he really feels comfortable and they get their result. Yeah, that is interesting. You bringing it up. Cause I really do the dynamic. And this is true for anybody at work. I kind of fill out the individual and the, how we work together is different for different people. You know, like with you and Paul, you're really methodical. You come in prepared. Everything's pretty much note for note worked out or whatever. It's just a matter of getting a good take with Dusty. He does a lot of kind of more improv loose theme based type stuff. And it's like, my job with him is to let him jam on the thing and, and try to help him find the good moments, you know, um, in a lot of his lead work or whatever. So it's it, there's a, a pretty different uh, dynamic in terms of like when we're working together to track and come up with ideas and, you know, and ha- you know, com- you know, note ideas would be less valuable with uh, Dan or Paul because they have the notes already chosen. You know, it's made in more my opinion on like maybe a tone or, a, you know, a, 
I'll tell you whether it's good or not, but with, with, with Dusty, I'd be like, hey, I like that theme that went da-da-da-da or whatever, and do that more and stuff like that. So we vibe off each other, and it, he sees something that, I, that I'm digging on, and then it makes him dig it more, and and then it you know eventually comes together. And the same thing happens with vocals. You know, Tommy will have the basic ideas, and I help him find harmonies here and there, and, uh, things like that or whatever. But it's usually just my role in this band in terms of uh, recommendations is just icing type stuff, you know, stuff maybe in a, a production effect or a, uh, a harmony or Got hey, it. let's put a horse here or let's put a trump <laughs> a trumpet over this, you know. Yeah. So it sounds though that like also you know who you're working with, like you said, down to the individual band members, like you know what they need. What one guy needs to be at his best is different than what somebody else needs. Totally. Absolutely. And you're aware of those things. And if I remember, Tommy didn't even do a demo of Voice of Trespass on the new record until he came to the studio because he just wanted to feel it out in here with you. And that's like, he's doing a real wild, like, Cab Calloway kind of thing. And it's, I think he was just like, I'm just going to feel it out in there with Jamie. And that it, yeah, it really it turned out amazing. Something fresh for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, everybody likes, and I try to do that. And I recommend that for any uh, anybody who listens to this, you know, is just to try to feel out the individual, see what, yeah, do what's going to be best for them, make them comfortable. And, uh, you know, I've noticed there's some performers, I don't think any of the guys in this band are this way, but some people like to have kind of an audience in the studio. Yep. You know, vocalists and stuff, you know, they feed off that energy or drummer wants to show off. You bring a hot chick in the studio and their their whole <laughs> energy change. I'm serious. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it, it really, like for me, it would make, it would totally distract me. And I think for the BT Bam guys, it probably would also. But there's some people who like you put a female in the room and then the vocalist, his his delivery is awesome all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> when he was boring before, you know. So it's, you know, it, different different people. I mean, you just got to kind of fill them out and see what you see what makes each individual ticks. I think, you know, having an intuition or knowledge about psychology is definitely, uh, definitely beneficial. And totally agree. Um, so, hey, we've been talking for a good little while now, so I don't want to take up. All of your day and <laughs> night and next month. But uh, we have a few questions here from some of our listeners that I'd oh, like cool. to get into. Yeah. And so I figure we'll just do that. And then I will let you guys go. So here's one from Charlie Monroe. And he's got a question for each of you. So we'll start with the question for Dan. He says, this will be awesome. Dan is probably my favorite bassist. So hi, Dan. You have a very unique playing style, and your note choice is extremely creative. You very rarely, rarely play the same thing as the guitarist, and in BT Bam, I find that I'm drawn to the bass almost like a lead instrument. Do you have any tips on how you approach writing this kind of material? Do you work with the guitarist to create riffs and bass lines that complement each other, or do you write some of the bass parts first? Yeah, I guess like I, I said earlier, I generally save writing my bass stuff to the end because I'm working, you know, compositionally, I'm, I'm writing keyboard on guitar and this and that. And um, I like for the bass, the bass, I would say over time, uh, my approach has changed a little bit. Now uh, our compositions are more like they, they feel like we stay within the song a lot more. So there could be some crazy stuff that happens, but it could just, it could just be a crazy song or, you know, like we've got a whole song on the record, The Voice of Trespass, like I talked about, that's, you know, it's this big, bombastic, big band thing. And we kind of carry that vibe out throughout the song. 
Whereas before, that could maybe be like a 20-second section of this song that was maybe on colors. You know, we maybe operated like that before. So as a bass player, that allows me to really like find the pocket with Blake, sit in it after I've already, you know, worked on this composition with the guys for, you know, months or whatever, and and approach it like that. I mean, you know, and, and of course, what, whatever you're putting in your head, I mean— you talk about the bass being its own layer. I I got that idea from Tony Levin and uh, King Crimson, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, but also just a band that I heard when I was in college, and it was a very instrumental time, and and there's so much going on and all these polyrhythms and counter-rhythms, and then, oh, yeah, by the way, there's a bass line holding it all together, and um, that's that was just huge for me. And uh, as a bassist, as any sort of musician, I think as a bassist, as a drummer— guitarist if you're in a progressive band you have to be pretty comfortable with a lot of different styles because um you know i've heard blake say it i mean you know there's times we we throw these shuffles at them or you know bluegrass thing whatever and and uh, you know salsa latin thing you know and and he kind of like is hip to all these different styles not just playing just metal or just a rock thing Thank you. All right. And this question is for Jamie. And uh, hey, Jamie, how do you approach mixing or producing a bassist like Dan, where they're usually playing very different things to the guitars, plus the fact that he doesn't use a pick? Well, in Dan's case, we I learned early on, you just uh, you take his rig and turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily, Dan, like I said, he came in, he uses a, a, an old Sunhead, or I guess it's, he's using the Fender version now, but... Uh, uh, it's you know it's a great classic all tube head. It's got a lot of fat mids. Dan doesn't do the the whole silly mid cut thing, and uh, you know the fact he plays fingerstyle. This bass uh, amp has a you know natural built in compression due to the tubes and all that, and has a little bit of drive to it. And Dan off, often uses overdrives and stuff in, in front of the the uh, the amp as well or whatever. But it gives it a nice you know, even dynamic sound or whatever. And he, of course, he also plays dynamically. You know, if it's supposed to be loud, he plays loud. It's supposed to be quiet, he plays quiet. So it makes it really easy for me. So just a little bit of compression on my end and just turn it up. I mean, that's uh, literally all you have to do with uh, Dan's parts. His, uh, his bass needs to be pronounced in the mix. And, uh, you know, uh, for BT Bam, I think, and uh, just because it, you know, it's, uh, it is doing interesting things and it is important to the overall orchestration of the stuff. It's not just a, it's not just a fill out the low end in most of it. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's basically as simple as that is just turn it up where it needs to be turned up. And uh, that's basically it. Got it. So, Jamie, this question is from James Bufalin, and this is, and he says, Jamie, first, I doubt you'll remember me. I'm one of the group of New York Swift fans, and we chilled in Jersey and did donuts in your van <laughs> behind the venue while listening to Meshuga. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely remember that. How long do you spend on getting guitar tones? And if there's anything, you usually do the same because the guitar tones on everything I've heard you engineer and mix sound phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I pretty much do a lot of things the same these days, but it depends on the what the client wants and what they're going for. You know, a lot of times, one thing I do the same is I try to use the guitar rig that the client chooses, whether they bring in one or uh, something else, even for something I'm not familiar with, I try to learn it. You know, there's a lot of producer engineer guys who it's like they're using the same preset on all the records and that bothers me. Uh, the bands I used to listen to when I grew up were like, you know, Pantera, Slayer, and 
Metallica and Megadeth and who, you know all these thrash. They all had their similar qualities to their tones, but they were all different and identifiable. So I try to let the bands have that as well. You know, the modern bands be different and identifiable. So that's one consistency. Um, but you know, almost always, you know, for metal guitar sound, I'm thinking that's probably what he's talking about. I'll, you know, I always put a, you know some sort of a tube screamer type device in front of the amp. You know, that's a kind of a standard type of thing. Uh, you know, pickup selection appropriate for the style is uh, is, is important, uh, as everybody knows. I'm still a big fan of a vintage 30, a nice worn-in Brit vintage 30. Still seems to win almost always with me, uh, which is another standard. Uh, but yeah, you know, like as, as far as uh, guitar amps and stuff, I mean, you know, obviously I've still got Dusty's old uh, uh, 5150 that I had Voodoo amps in New York modify, and it's still one of the best sounding amps I've got for metal. And uh, I use that. Man, you can't go wrong with those. Uh, they're just they they struck gold when they did that for metal. You know, it's just a it's got this huge open mid range thing that nothing else has. And um, yeah, I love the new fifty one fifty three. It's definitely it's definitely awesome. Also, but uh, yeah, something about that the original fifty one fifty is just a uh, it's just a, a huge gnarly sounding amp. You know, I'm still a big Marshall fan. Nobody likes Marshalls anymore, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I still like Marshalls uh, personally, you know, so I try to use a Marshall when I can. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really open-minded. Just, uh, you know, like I said, I, just like with productions and I like a lot of different guitar tones, you know, like the, the 70s tones. I like the, you know, a Tom, Tommy solo record or whatever we had. We used, we'd just hook up a distortion pedal straight to the friggin', you know, computer or whatever and get that Nine Inch Nails just, you know, chainsaw guitar tone. And I love it, you know, it's just like... Um, you know, it's not something you would use on a whole album or anything, you know, these days, but it's just, you know, it's fun. You know, it's like, a, it's just a different color. Uh, you know, that's kind of how I approach guitar tunes. Well, I think a big thing, too, is like we take all this time on the arrangements. Like you have to take the time in the studio as well. You can't just fly through the process of finding your sounds and be like, OK, we're good. Let's go. We give ourselves a whole day, you know, where we're in here just. Just for tones. Yeah. Just hearing different stuff. And we have so many different sounds as the record goes on. We don't lock in with just one thing, but we really try to, we listen to so many different combinations. Yeah. You guys have probably, you know, uh, you know, probably 20, 30 guitar sounds on one album, yeah. you know, just uh, different pickups, different amps. You have to take the time though. You know, I, th I would think as a producer yeah, it, too, you can't just, you know, shrug it off and just blast through it and be like, okay, cool. There's your amp. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's no one one fits all with this style of music for sure. Well, that's I think that's part of it too. Is uh, if you have put the time in for long enough, like if you put the time in enough times, and work with good people too. So like you know, in a situation where good tones are even a possibility, because like for instance, if you work with shitty guitar players for yeah. 10 years, you're not, you know, you might have 10 years worth of experience on guitar, but recording, but you're not going to get good tones because it's not possible. So there needs to be some, I feel like, you know, there need to be some conditions that line up consistently in order for it to be possible. Like, so you need to be working with the right people. Obviously you need to have the right gear and all that stuff. But then beyond that, like you just need to put in the time enough times to where your ears and your brain start to understand what it is you're listening to and for, you know? Oh yeah, exactly. You can't shortcut that. No. Nah. And being, I think, you know, for the producers out there, the up and comings, like try to be open-minded with the, uh, 
the clients, a lot of times I've learned so much from the clients, you know, from BT BAM and the guys that come in, you know, they, they, they've learned something or they know something about some gear that I've not never even heard of. And, you know, I've learned, like I said, we called, you know, John Petruzzi on the phone or whatever. And he was told us stuff and I'm like, awesome, we're going to do that. You know, he knows because he gets great tone. So being open-minded and, uh, you know, hearing other people out and just trying different things, it could take extra time to do it, but uh, it's always worth it. In the, you know, in time or whatever, you'll be able to get quicker tones and specific tones faster, you know, as people request them. You know, they, hey, I want it to sound like this. And like, I, I can listen to a record now and almost, almost, you know, nail what amp and pickup combination they used. You know, it's a, you know, but it, it's taken decades to do that. <laughs> Yeah, but being at that point where you can just understand what you're hearing, that probably is a huge part of why you're comfortable being open-minded on records you're working with and and being like, look, there's like, yeah, I like vintage 30s, but, you know, I'm open to whatever fits the client. Because the thing is, you do know what you're listening for, yeah. and you have had those years of working it all out. So it's not like you got good at doing 5150 tones. And then if someone brings in something else that you never used before, you're fucked. Like, it's not like that. You, you understand what you're hearing as far as guitars go. Exactly. Yeah. Like it bums me out sometimes to tell people that you just got to put in the time. Because sometimes I feel like it's a, like, it sounds like a cop out answer. Like, yeah, just use your ears, bro. But like, it's true. Yeah, and I don't feel like I've mastered it. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I still don't feel like I'm getting the tones I want. You know, it's like, and the tone I used to think was awesome in 2000, is a, it sounds terrible to me now, you know? Um, so that that happens as well. You know, you'll master a certain sound, like, you know, the new metal sound back in the day. I was a master of that, <laughs> you know, and that's useless now. <laughs> so it's so it's like, you know, so that, that, that kind of thing happens. So, uh, so yeah, it's just, you know, you got to put in the time or whatever. I think part of getting good at something is never feeling like you're good at something. Yeah, it just pushes you. Yeah, the moment you, like, get complacent, you stop getting better. Yep. Same reason that I remember when I found out that Jeff Loomis, at, like, 40 years old, was still taking guitar lessons. It was like, okay. <laughs> you wouldn't think that he needs lessons, but it makes sense. That's why he's so good is because he thinks he needs lessons. If you're involved in the arts, like— it shouldn't stop ever. You know, it's the, the personal journey towards never being satisfied, you know, never finding your thing and being like, okay, cool. This is what I'm just going to ride with for the rest of my life. You know, I've, I've peaked out at this point, you know, it's, you can't do that. You ha it's, yeah. it's a constant journey. Yeah. That's death. <laughs> yeah. You reach a point, like I said, I mean, which I found that, you know, the more I've learned about the normal stuff and the standards, you know, now I want to, I find myself wanting to innovate, maybe try to come up with something else, you know, like a new guitar sound or a new bass sound, a new drum sound that nobody's ever done, a new way of doing stuff. You know, I find myself wanting to do that, and uh, it could be successful, it could be a disaster, but, you know, it's like I think that's uh, to further the whole craft for yourself and for everybody else. I mean, that's what you got to do. You got to get to that point. Absolutely. Um, okay, so this question is for Dan. Dan, uh, this is from Kiko Picasso. And he's saying, Dan, how did Orbs come about? It seems like such a random lineup. Yeah, so that's a band that I started in like 2009 or 2010. And it was really, it was just with um, just a couple friends. You know, I've I've had so many 
groups on the side of Between the Buried and Me. Uh, I was just telling Jamie how I've, I've just been writing for a new one that I just started. And it's, you know, part of the joy of being a touring professional musician is meeting other people who you feel like you jive with and you can share uh, creative interests with. And because uh, you know that there's a level of professionalism if you're meeting them on tour that they want to do this and, and it's it's what they're all about. So that question's already out the window. They've been vetted. Exactly. And that band I was playing guitar in and Adam Fisher, the singer I, I toured with, we toured with with uh, BT Bam and Fear Before the March of Flames and he sang on Colors. I think he's still the only guest singer that we've ever had on a record, if I can remember. Does that yeah. sound right? Yeah. And um that was just such a fun, a fun group. Our our keyboardist Ashley was like a you know classically trained p- pianist, and we just all had this shared interest of loving, you know, weird rock music and uh, space rock and progressive rock, and we just had a lot of fun. Wrote some some wild stuff, and we came and we did that with Jamie. I mean, for as many adventures as Between the Bear to Me takes, anytime one of us comes. You know, if Tommy comes to do a solo record with Jamie or like I've come with orbs, I've come with triosscapes. I mean, when we came in here with bass, saxophone and drums, we didn't even know what our <laughs> we didn't know what our band sounded like. <laughs> we had played live, but we didn't have a grasp of what it was. And we just discovered it at the same time Jamie was discovering it. And <laughs> so, yeah, we always I always come in with, you know, these wild new things with people from all over the world, really with Jamie and we figure out what the band is and what the sound is together. It's kind of fun. All right. Here's a question from Sean Michael George. And speaking of sound and finding your sound, Sean Michael George asks, and this is for both Dan and Jamie, how do you keep your sound consistent album to album without sounding stale? And for Jamie, that's specifically because you seem to have a very thorough formula that you follow mix to mix, yet you never sound stale. And same with Dan, it's because uh, you always go to new places, but you still sound like you. So how do you keep that consistency without, you know, without sounding stale? I guess that's the $18 million question. Yeah. Oh, I guess, well, I don't know. I mean, our, our music is always evolving and I've talked about that and why that's important as an artistic journey to do. But, you know, I'm using generally the same bass that I've had since I was 16 and playing through the same setup that I've had my whole adult life in, in some form or another. And I guess the, the hands are a part of it for me. I mean, it's, I, I think when you're a bassist, especially some playing with your fingers, that you have a tone that's kind of, it's kind of yours in a way that's, that's different. And I remember that from giving lessons when I was in college, seeing the way, you know, a, a different person attacks their bass and does it in such a specific way. And if anyone picks up my basses, I kind of have famously high action, really high action. And it's just, I don't know if it's just what I got used to when I was in college over time, you know, playing upright bass. I have no idea, but it's what works with my hands. And anytime I put it in the hands of someone else, a very accomplished bass player or whatever, they're like, oh my God, this is weird. But if I pick up their bass where the strings are resting right on the fretboard, if I try to dig in and play, you know, it's all, it's just only buzz. So I don't know. Yeah. As far as different sounds, I mean, yeah, like I said, I mean, uh, Dan 
you know, we've we've used the thumb pick, I think, on the R the yeah, orange record. That's right. Uh, we experiment with different types of picks and uh, you know approaches in terms of a uh, you know, like I said, his amp, his rig stays the same, but like uh, Dan uses a lot of pedals. Uh, you'll change that up from project to project and record to record. You'll add a new a new synth based sound or a, a new overdrive or stuff like that. So that'll keep it fresh. Uh, you know, new tonal palettes, I guess, uh, as far as the bass is concerned. But yeah, as far as the records, you know, it's my approach is the same in that, you know, like I said, I let the I try to let the gear sound the way it sounds, you know, like Blake comes in for the next record, he usually has a different kit, uh, new snare, new heads, different heads. We just try them. And if it kicks ass, we roll with it. And if not, we just change it, you know, and I don't try to do anything in the computer to, uh, severely augment them like i don't do the whole snare stacking sample thing where it's gonna you know you're gonna get this uh radically different thing than than what was actually performed on and recorded so it's like uh so basically whatever they bring in to record with is what it sounds like and if it's different it's gonna sound different you know and um even if i use the same eq or same processing on my end it's uh the, the actual instrument itself is still gonna sound different and uh I think that's I think that's the main thing. Like the records, with the BT Bam records in specific, we used almost a different guitar rig almost every record. Uh, different guitars, different uh, pickups from part to part. Um, so that that's going to change the sound there. I just try to make things better. You know, I try to buy better preamps or uh, you know better conversions, new mics, things like that, or whatever to kind of um, to make other things sound better. You know, uh, whenever possible, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, I mean it's re- really all you can do. I mean all I all I can do anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I think that people overthink this because uh, having your own sound is almost as it's almost as simple as having your own personality, which yeah. you already have. Like you already have your own personality. You already are unique. Um, I mean, some people are, I guess, uh, have more. Uh, are more different than others, I guess, but, but you are already unique. You already have your own personality. That's you hundred percent you. And so this sounding like you thing is anyone who has put in the time on their instrument or as a mixer or whatnot is going to have their own sound, like their own feel, their own tendencies, all that stuff is locked in as a human who put in the time it's the way that i think people sound fresh yet consistent is just by continually trying to learn new things because the one thing that doesn't change the one thing that's constant in the equation all the time is you your brain that's the part that's always there your hands your brain your ears like that no matter what the that filter is always there so you can learn new things that's not who you are is not going to change. So the thing that will kill your sound though, I think is by not continually learning new things that challenge you and keep you evolving. So really, I think the only real secret to it in my experience, in my opinion is learning new things and keep on working at it. And then you will accomplish both. You will be both consistently you and fresh and people should just stop overthinking it and just get to work. Yeah, and stop trying to sound like other people, you know, exactly. Yes. You know, like maybe try to learn just to have the tricks in your toolbox, but 
you don't try to sound like I, you know, like I have so many people who are like, I want this exact guitar sound and they are not happy with me until it sounds exactly like that. I'm like, this is so pointless. Like, I mean, it's just like, it's, you know, sometimes it's so much work to get, it's like, dude, your hands don't sound that way. You don't understand. It's not just his pickups or guitar amp or whatever, you know? And it's like, and so many people, and it's like, it, it, they would sound fine and it would be awesome if they just would sound the way they, they sound fine the way they sound, you know, but they just want it to sound like something else. And it's, uh, they're doing themselves a disservice. I think in everybody, you know, it's just, uh, just, you know, be, you know, if it, unless it particularly sounds bad, <laughs> you know, and even then sometimes sounding bad is better than sounding like somebody else. But I agree. I just think it's it, eventually it's going to be to your, your benefit to have a unique sound, you know? Absolutely. Well, speaking of doing a great service, I think you guys have done a uh, great service to our listeners by coming on and hanging out. And I just want to thank you, Dan Briggs, and thank you, Jamie King, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and have a great night. I'd love to talk to you again. And thank you. Congrats, of course, on the nomination. Appreciate it. Keep killing it, please. Yeah. Thanks for having it. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Empire Ears. In collaboration with Grammy-winning producers, engineers, and their family of touring musicians, Empire Ears has developed a line of in-ear monitors that deliver what you need for every mix. When it comes to unrivaled stage clarity or needing a flat and honest reference for your latest studio mix, Empire Ears has got you covered no matter where you find yourself. If you like the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast, make sure you leave us a review, subscribe, and send us a message if you want to get in touch.